0: Chapter 3, verse 1. See now, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, is about to take from Jerusalem and Judah both supply and support, all supplies of food, all supplies of water, the hero and warrior, the judge and prophet, the soothsayer and elder, the captain of fifty and man of rank, the counsellor, the skilled craftsman, and clever enchanter. I will make boys their officials. Mere children will govern them. Verse 16. The Lord says... The women of Zion are haughty, walking along with outstretched necks, flirting with their eyes, tripping along with mincing steps, with ornaments jingling on their ankles. Verse 24, instead of fragrance there will be stench, instead of a sash a rope, instead of well-dressed hair, baldness, instead of fine clothing, sackcloth, instead of beauty, branding, their men will fall by the sword, your warriors in battle. Chapter 4, verse 2. In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. The fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of the survivors in Israel. Let's ask God to help us understand. Ah, <coughs> Heavenly Father, these are words spoken nearly 3,000 years ago to people very far from us. And yet, Lord, we pray that you'd show us how (coughs) those people and that situation is in many ways close to us. And help us, Lord, to see you through that and to be filled all the more fully with rapture. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It was one tea time uh, (coughs) this week, one of our children said, Dad, what's an altar boy? Well, I referred that question to Judy because she has personal experience of uh, those sorts of things, which I don't. Um, But then I began to wonder what uh, prompted the question And it turned out that um, our child had been in a friend's home when the friend's little brother had ventured the opinion that he was utterly worthless. And immediately the dad had said, I know all about that. We are not worthy so much as to eat the crumbs from under the table, he intoned. Turning to the gathered children, he said, where does that come from? And none of them knew Of course, it comes from the old uh, Anglican prayer book. The mum uh, in this family then chipped in and she said, oh, don't listen to him, she said. He was an altar boy and he's been scarred for life. (laughs) So came the question, what's an altar boy? That whole incident actually made me think. First of all, about how the message of Christianity actually gets distorted in people's minds. The message of the Bible is not supposed to make us feel morbidly worthless, but actually infinitely loved. Actually, that's the the whole thrust of that prayer that the scarred ex altar boy was half quoting. The very next phrase says to God, but your property is always to have mercy the mercy of God, the faithful love of God, the the deep compassion of God that the Bible actually emphasises. The biblical authors are determined that our confidence in God's love shouldn't rest on the weak foundations of our goodness and our worthiness because sooner or later, if they do, then we will discover we're not quite as good or worthy as we fondly imagined and our grasp on God's love will dissolve. They were determined that our confidence in God should actually rest firmly on his compassion for us in our weakness, his faithfulness to us despite our folly, his tender mercy to us. He loves to forgive sins. That that rather florid language of the prayer book, you see, was designed to break through those arrogant pretensions that we so often have, those those misguided tendencies to base our confidence in some um, rather fragile goodness that we may conjure up in ourselves, rather than basing our confidence solidly in the mercy and love and faithfulness of God. It is certainly true that some religious tri- traditions that go by the name of Christian have, have encouraged us to, to wallow rather like uh, um, pigs in, uh, in, in the mud, in the, in the grime of our inner, inner lives. But actually that's not the, the biblical emphasis and that's not the Bible's purpose in showing us our sin and our weakness. But whatever the reason, this dad had not seen it. He'd been made to feel utterly worthless. But then I thought a little bit further. Certainly some um, people's Christian experience has given them a massive weight of shame. But it seems to me that abandonment of that old prayer book style of self-deprecation hasn't eliminated feelings of shame at all. In fact, I think you could make a strong case that our feelings of shame are greater. Our um, motto, of course, is the L'Oreal motto, because I'm worth it. And yet, counselors and psychologists and psychiatrists and school teachers, and, and frankly, anybody who is involved in uh, delving a little behind the brash facade of the world uh, 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 that, that we offer to the world, will tell you that that little boy's feelings about himself are all too common. I am worthless. It's interesting that in this family that had self-consciously put aside what was perceived as a a past wallowing in shame had not been able to insulate their own children from that feeling. Actually the majority of people I I, I speak to would, would say, I think, Um, who are involved in dealing with people's inner lives. But those feelings of shame are growing amongst us. I wonder why. Of course, there are still plenty of people who blame Christianity for that, as that dad did. But you see, our society is moving further and further from its Christian roots. More and more people are growing up with no Christian background. The claim that it is Christianity that has imposed those feelings of shame on them gets weaker and weaker as the years go by. Now, I think there's something else going on. Something that was going on in the Judah of Isaiah's day. Judah, if you have um, um, been with us, you will know, has... uh, um, in large part, abandoned God. In Isaiah chapter 1, for instance, God says that he reared them, he brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. Chapter 1, verse 2. Judah, says God, has, has found actually in itself a growing sense of woundedness and brokenness. Chapter 1 verse 6, From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness, only wo- wounds and bruises and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with oil, says God. God offers them forgiveness, but they will not accept it. Isaiah chapter 2 then uh, explores two future possibilities for that nation of Judah. Two future uh, uh, communities. One we call the the community of destruction. Community of destruction especially for the proud. Chapter 2 verse 12. The Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty, for all that is exalted, they will be humbled, says God. But there is another community as well in chapter 2, a community of of global peace and reconciliation. Verse 3 for instance, many peoples will come and say, come let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. They will beat their swords into plowshares, says Isaiah. So we come to uh, chapters 3 and 4 of Isaiah and Isaiah portrays to us once again those two potential communities. But this time he portrays them in slightly different terms. He is going to portray God's community in chapter 4, a community of pride and glory and, and, and cleanness, without moral guilt, secure, most supremely without shame. But before he gets to that, He's going to describe another community in chapter 3. Community of people opposed to the living God. And this we find is a community in which shame grows and grows and grows despite their desperate aims to hide it. And God quite unabashedly tells us why that shame grows. He causes it. That's what we're going to uh, uh, look at this morning then, in these uh, two chapters. First of all, in chapter three, we are going to see God's words to this community opposed to him. And the first thing God says very clearly is He will shame them. He's not going to shame them because of their sin, Everybody sins. He is going to shame them because of their shameless flaunting of their sins. Verse 9, the look on their faces testifies them again against them, he says. They parade their sin like Sodom. They do not hide, hide it. That's why. How is God going to shame them? Well, two big things he is going to say. The first he says in the first 15 verses of chapter 3, is he is going to shame that whole community, that whole society by removing their leaders, removing absolutely everything that makes them feel secure in fact. See now, the Lord Almighty is about to take from Jerusalem and Judah both supply and support, all supplies of food, all supplies of water, the hero, the warrior, the judge and the prophet, the soothsayer and the elder, the captain of 50, a man of rank, the council of the skilled craftsman, the clever enchanter. All sorts of leaders he's going to take from them. He's going to take their charlatans away for a start, the soothsayers and the clever enchanters. That's no great loss is it? He's going to take their, their military strength away though, their warrior and their captain of 50 and their man of rank. He's going to take their wisdom away from them as a society, their counsellor and elder, their prophets. He's going to take their, ju- their, their, their their justice away from them, their judge. He's going to take their cultural refinement away from them, their skilled craftsmen. And instead he is going to allow youths to rule them. Verse 4, I will make boys their officials, mere children will govern them. And he will allow anarchy to prevail. Verse 5, people will oppress each other, man against man, neighbour against neighbour, the young will get a, rise up against the old, the base against the honourable. How far do you think we as a society have gone down that road? It's interesting to think, isn't it? No doubt in my mind, for instance, that we've gone a long way down the road of Lack of respect for authority. Young rising up against old, base against honourable. You only need to walk around the centre of Oxford on a Friday or a Saturday night. So now how threatening it feels. Uh, We uh, as a society have gone a long way down that road. The youths rule us? Your definition of a youth depends on uh, how old you are, doesn't it? It does seem to me, though, that uh, that uh, there is a debasement of public life. This um, week, I was thinking about uh, two sexual scandals in government, for instance. Separated from one another by a generation. Yes, we've always sinned. It was interesting to see how people respond to sins. Just a few of you will remember the Profumo affair in 1963. John Profumo got involved in um, a brief liaison with a girl who was also involved with the Soviet military attaché, which wasn't a very wise thing since he was a cabinet minister. He resigned. What not everybody knows is that John Profumo then devoted the rest of his life to uh, charitable work amongst deprived people in East London and actually got a CBE for it. There was a man who failed, but who I can't help feeling was of a different uh, calibre for some of our more recent um, cabinet ministers who've been involved in sexual scandals. You seem then to trade on their reputation as being slightly uh, dubious. I remember the Westland crisis, which nearly uh, um, felled Margaret Thatcher but it was minor, compared with uh, the present day crisis over Iraq. Now these things happen imperceptibly, but one can't help feeling when we think about it. That we live in a society that is slowly gaining a more and more debased view of leadership. And have we um, had our military security uh, removed? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? One, Just a small little group of fanatics now can under, undermine military superpowers. Have we had our skilled craftsmen removed? Well, I'm not a expert in the history of art. There is much that's going on at the moment that is interesting in the artistic world. But much of modern art is characterised by simply a desire to shock, simply a sense of negativity and deconstruction. I wonder And has God done the same to his church in the West? I will remove the prophet, says God. Could it be that part of the reality behind shrinking church numbers is actually that God has said, at least at this time, I will not raise up great leaders. I will not allow a society that is so determined against me to have a church which thrives as it once did. Now, these are solemn words. And they are important words for us, I think. As we reflect on our society, our world. God was determined to shame Judah by removing leaders. And God was determined as well to uh, shame them by exposing that hidden shame. And uh, uh, from verse 16 onwards, God moves much more from, uh, from, from the national life of the nation to interpersonal life and particularly focuses on the women. The Lord says the women of Zion are haughty, walking along with outstretched necks, flirting with their eyes, tripping along with mincing steps, with ornaments jingling on their ankles. Therefore the Lord will bring sores on their heads of the women of Zion. The Lord will make their scalps bald. In that day the Lord will snatch away their finery, the bangles and headbands and crescent necklaces, the earrings and bracelets and veils, the headdresses and ankle chains and sashes and perfume bottles and charms, the signet rings and nose rings and fine robes and the capes and cloaks and purses and mirrors and linen garments and tiaras and shawls, he says. He is criticising, first of all, their arrogance. The women of Zion are haughty. He criticises their, their abuse of their sexuality. They are flirting with the eyes. And he criticises at great, to, uh, at great length their obsession with their wealth and their image more than anything. Tripping along with mincing steps, with ornaments jangling on their ankles. Now, is God opposed then to women dressing nicely? No. no, no, no. That's not the point at all. Actually, though, um, um, many people hear differently. The Puritans are our great example when it comes to um, uh, uh, dressing nicely. Many people think that the uh, the Puritans were um, obsessed with dressing modestly. They, uh, we have this uh, this image. Of the uh, the Puritan woman here, possibly even dressed less ornately than uh, uh, the, than that that picture, and uh, we, as a standard, criticised the Puritans for for uh, hating beauty. It's just not true. It's a complete misrepresentation of the of of. Uh, the history of the Puritans. First of all, generally, they, they dressed colourfully and actually were criticised for it by um, some certain more ra- radical people. Famous quote from Matthew Fox that uh, the Puritans were terrible for their, for their uh, ribbons and bright colours that they wore. The reason why all the uh, portraits of Puritan women are like this, is because in the 17th century, that was the height of of fashion. It was a Dutch uh, uh, fashion that had become uh, widespread throughout Europe. So of course, on special occasions, they dressed really smartly in the little black number, which was a little bit bigger in their case. (laughs) But black and white was very smart. and That was how they dressed. They, they, they are a great example to us actually of, the, of people who understood God's mind on how to dress. Yes, they did avoid excesses but no, they weren't afraid of looking smart and being proud of it. Now this, this, this criticism here in Isaiah chapter 4 is not at all against rejoicing in bright colours, good clothes. No, it is all about, in fact, using clothes to flaunt wealth, using clothes to uh, flaunt our sexuality. Using clothes, perhaps, um, Uh, more than anything else, to manipulate others. Women know men are very manipulable. And some abuse that. Now in different cultures, precisely what that means will will be quite different. If you go to India, a glimpse of ankle is far more shocking than a glimpse of midriff. we have to understand um, the, the, the cultural messages that we are given. But in our own culture particularly, everybody learns the difference between enjoying being beautiful and using the way that we dress to manipulate others. I fear that our our uh, our our culture, which actually mocks any self-restraint. I fear that that, that uh, we have gone a long way towards the shamefulness that God criticizes. I don't think it is any accident that there is a, a rise in uh, sexual assaults and rapes in our country at the moment. God says, he is going to dramatically and publicly expose those sorts of attitudes. Look at verse 24. Instead of fragrance, there will be a stench. Instead of a sash, a rope. Instead of well-dressed hair, baldness. Instead of fine clothing, sackcloth. Instead of beauty, branding, he says. He will not allow that brazen, arrogant behavior. He will expose it for what it is. Now, um, one of the icons of our time, of course, is Madonna. She's uh, uh, epitomized these. Attitude of brash sexuality. In 1997 she declared she was a material girl, if you remember. But actually recently she has become dissatisfied with that. She's embraced a movement, a Jewish uh, mystical movement called Kabbalah. And uh, last year she released an album entitled American Life. And here are some of the lyrics of the title title track. I think they show us That underlying sense of fear and anxiety that is covered so thinly very often by this brash mincing along and ornamentation. Here she is. Do I have to change my name? Will it get me far? Should I lose some weight? Am I going to be a star? I tried to be a boy. I tried to be a girl. I tried to be a mess. I tried to be the best. I guess I did it wrong, that's why I wrote this song. This type of modern life, is it for me? I tried to stay ahead, I tried to stay on top, I tried to play the part but somehow I forgot just what I did it for and why I wanted more. This type of modern life, is it for me? I do yoga and pilates and the room is full of hotties so I'm checking out their bodies and you know I'm satisfied. I've got a lawyer and a manager, an agent and a chef, three nannies and assistants and a driver and a jet, a trainer and a butler and a bodyguard of five, a gardener and a stylist. Do you think I'm satisfied? I'd like to express my extreme point of view. I'm not a Christian and I'm not a Jew. I'm just living out the American dream. And I just realised nothing is what it seems. Now, there is that underlying fear of exposure, I think, written everywhere in our society. And should we be surprised? Because underlying, I suspect, there is an instinct. that one day we may be exposed. As God warns them here. And that would be very terrible. God shames then a haughty, wealth displaying, sexually manipulative culture. The more we defy defy him, the more we store up for ourselves disaster. But in these couple of chapters there is another community. Described actually in chapter 3 as a remnant. A community which lives... At the same time as this community which is storing up for itself ever increasing levels of hidden shine, it exists as chapter four, verse two puts it, in that day, in the same day. A community which is though is utterly different, a community which loves God. That's what we're going to look at now, then. At the heart of this community, in chapter four, verse two, is a branch. In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. The fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of the survivors in Israel. The branch, you see, was a um, was a was deeply symbolic and therefore very useful image for more than one of the prophets. It was a symbol of regeneration, a stump that has been cut off grows another branch. It was a symbol of strength. Again and again in the Old Testament you find that uh, a branch is used to symbolise the, the, the strength of a tree, the strength of a nation, the strength of a person. It was a, string, a symbol of fruitfulness as well. Branches bear fruit. So Isaiah uses this image. Anticipating Jesus Christ He is this branch it becomes uh, clear later in in Isaiah that this branch is a descendant of David this branch is going to be a great king this branch is Jesus And this branch is going to be beautiful and glorious God's people are going to be a people enraptured with that beauty, the beauty of Christ. It's such a great contrast to that false beauty of these mincing women adding, adding ornament upon ornament to their bodies to try desperately to maintain a sense of their own beauty. And then here is another community who finds beauty in Jesus. Community which is full of, of of true pride. The branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. The fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of the survivors in, in Israel. Is the fruit of the land um, the branch, the same same thing? Or is the fruit is the fruit of the land perhaps just the fruitfulness of their life? But this life, living um, uh, enraptured by Christ's beauty, does produce fruit and is does produce true pride in God's people. The Apostle Paul, again and again, speaks to uh, speaks to churches. Saying uh, that they are his delight, they are his pride. Especially uh, uh, he encourages us, if you are going to boast, boast in the Lord. That's where we can be proud. We can be proud of what God has done in us and through us. We can be proud of Jesus Christ himself who loved us for eternity. We will not find pride simply by looking inside ourselves, looking deeper and deeper into the recesses of our soul. We will only find that true sense of beauty, that true sense of pride, as we look to Jesus Christ. People as well who are called holy. Verse 3. Those who are left in Zion, who remain in Jerusalem, will be called holy, all who are recorded among the living in Jerusalem. That word holy has a sense of, of perfection and faultlessness and especially of being, being set apart to be in God's presence. Made made to be like God and to be in God's presence. God's people will, are called holy. If you want to feel whole, if you want, well, well, want to feel feel the, That you've become the person that you long to be, and find Christ. Find His loving arms around you. Find Him saying, You are mine. I choose you for myself. I will keep you in my presence forever. You are holy. The community as well. Who, um, oh I missed out a section, let's um, nip back. Who are clean. Do you see verse 4? The Lord will wash away the filth of the women of Zion. He will cleanse the bloodstains from Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of fire. It's not, you see, they're not clean because they were never dirty. It's not clean, they're not clean because they've suddenly discovered the the perfect person that was inside them all along trying to get out. They were dirty and God washes them. Cleansing the filth of those women. They did have the deep embarrassment of blood on the streets of Jerusalem because of the injustice that they perpetrated to one another. But God cleanses those bloodstains from Jerusalem. They have become clean. Because God forgives them. Yes, it's with a spirit of judgement and fire, says God. From the New Testament perspective, we know what that meant. Yes, God still had to judge sin but he judged it in his son Jesus Christ who paid for all our sins. He still had to send fire but this time he sent the fire of the Holy Spirit who made God's people alive with delight and gave them new hearts and made them clean. This is a community more than anything else that enjoys God's presence. The Lord will create over all of Mount Zion and over those who assemble there a cloud of smoke by day and a glowing glow of flaming fire by night. Over all the glory will be a canopy. It will be a shelter and a shade from the heat of the day and a refuge and a hiding place from the storm and the rain." The, the, the image of the cloud of smoke by day and the glow of f- flaming fire by night comes from way back in the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, um, after the people had been delivered from slavery in Egypt, God was with the people as they wandered through the desert in cloud by day and fire by night. And it will be the same for you, says Isaiah. After God has delivered you, after God has cleansed you, after God has made you new, made you holy, after God has shown you the branch, Jesus Christ, and found for you a true source of beauty, a true source of pride, after that, God will be with you, just as he was with those Israelites. He will be there to guide you. They never moved a step except when God's presence moved ahead of them, it says in Exodus. And that can be the situation for you too, says Isaiah. You can have God's guiding hand. God with you. For all of your life. And then there's the image of the canopy. It will be a shelter and a shade from the heat of the day and a refuge and a hiding place from the storm and the rain. Canopy was, a, was, was, was like a tent or marquee. Often actually canopies were wedding canopies where a husband and wife came together and were joined forever. Whether it's a wedding canopy that's in mind or just the protection that a roof over their heads provides for them, we don't know. God will be their protection. God will look after them when the going gets tough in the heat of the day. God will look after them in the storm and the rain. God will provide them with a hiding place, a refuge. God will provide it for you. That's a new community then. That God promises. A community so dramatically different from that community which is desperately trying to rule itself, desperately trying to persuade itself that it's beautiful. And increasingly finding shame, catching up with it. Did you notice everything about that new community is focused on God and Christ? On the branch of the Lord? We become beautiful as we see the beauty of Christ. We find a true basis of pride as we see what Christ has done for us and through us. We become holy, complete, special, as we find that God has done that for us. We find cleanness as God wipes away our filth. We discover confidence and security and and being at home when we find God with us as a pillar of cloud and fire and a canopy. So that's our choice. It's a stark one, but in the end it's one that faces every single one of us. Will I try to run my whole life, either as an individual or as a society? And find that God chips away at my power to rule, my power to control, my power to protect. Brings me lower and lower and lower. Will I try to manufacture in myself some false beauty that I constantly need to adorn and feel inside myself the growing well of ugliness? Or will I find Christ? who makes me whole, who makes me holy, who stays with me to guide and protect me forever.